All right, praises be to Yahuwah, our Father and our God, for gathering us all together to study His Holy Words. Welcome to another episode of the Bible History Project. Before we proceed, let us all stand for our opening prayer. Everlasting Father, yes. Holy Yahuwah God, yes. we again gather before Your presence. Yes. We worship Your holy name. Yes. We proclaim Your greatness. We thank you for gathering your people from different places across the globe. Yes. We are connected today for one purpose, to know your will, to please you, that through your teachings we can be fully prepared to receive your promised salvation. Amen. Father, help us in our study. Yes. May you send your Holy Spirit that yes. we will know you more, that we will love you more, yes. which is what we truly want to do. Lord Yahusha, we also worship you. Yes. May you be with us at this hour. Strengthen yes. the faith of your chosen and continue, please, to increase our faith. Amen. Father, we believe that you have listened to our prayers. Yes. For we ask and beg everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha. Amen. Amen. All right, welcome to another episode of the Bible History Project. From our last meeting, we talked about the ten plagues, the tenth plague being the death of the firstborn son, or the firstborn of all the creatures there in Egypt. And of course, God is going to protect his people. He doesn't want the firstborn of his people to suffer any demise. And so God prepared something so that the curse or the plague will pass over the people of God. Hence, we have what is called the Passover. And so what does God instruct Moses and Aaron before sending the plague? Let's read the book of Exodus 12, 1 down to 2. Take note the asterisk of the biblical versions we're using. It is to indicate that instead of using the L-O-R-D, we are using the Tetragrammaton in Paleo-Hebrew script, which is, of course, the original script. We don't want to hide the name of the Father any longer. We want to proclaim it. We want to show it. Hence, out of respect for the name of the Father, that is what we decided to do with the modern English versions of the Bible that we are using. So let's begin Exodus 12, 1 to 2. While the Israelites were still in the land of Egypt, Yahuwah gave the following instructions to Moses and Aaron. From now on, this month will be the first month of the year for you. Now, what does that mean? What is God trying to tell the people of Israel? This month is going to be the first month of the year for you. God is basically telling the people of Israel, today is going to be a new day and a new beginning for you. Because this day, that new month, is going to mark the birth date of the people of Israel. Remember, they entered, exit, or they entered Egypt as a family, they're going to leave as a nation. So Egypt served as a womb for the people of Israel. Now it's time for the baby to come out. It's time for Israel to finally become a nation. It signals the birth of a nation. Take note in the Jewish nation. Next slide, please. There were two calendars in the Old Testament. A civil calendar that began in our Gregorian September, October and a religious calendar that began in our March and April. And so when God said, this month will be the beginning of your month, that happened on a March and April. So that would be the month of Nisan to the people of Israel. The word Nisan is actually a replacement of Abib, which is the original name. But to, so that we will not get confused, for us or for the people of Israel, 
it is the first month, but for us it's March and April, somewhere between there, because it's always fluctuating. It's not like ours. Okay, so that's the mark of a new calendar, a mark of a new nation. And so on the first month, what does God instruct people to do on the 10th of the first month? Let's read Exodus 12, verse 3. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. So on the 10th of the first month, the month of Nisan, the people of Israel they're going to make or look for and take for himself a lamb. What is the purpose of the lamb? And why does God choose a lamb? We'll find out throughout the course of our study. So when choosing a lamb, of course, they're planning to eventually eat the lamb. And so if a lamb is too big for a household, what were they instructed to do? Exodus 12 verse 4 and if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. So there's going to be a feast, right? They're going to eat the lamb. If the lamb is too big, well, then they have to invite some of their neighbors because they don't want to waste any meat from the lamb. And what kind of lamb are they to select? What were the qualifications the lamb must satisfy? Exodus 12, verse 5, your lamb shall be, number one, without blemish. What else? A male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Just in case they run out of sheep, they can get from the goats. But, of course, the preference is for a lamb. I wonder why. Do you have any idea why? I think you know by now the purpose of Exodus, the purpose of the Old Testament, it all points to who? Yahusha. I want you to try to see and find Yahusha in the passages we're going to uncover. Now, once they select the lamb on the 10th of Nisan, what are they going to do with that lamb? Let's read before they slaughter the lamb. Exodus 12 and the verses 6. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. So according to scriptures, once you select your lamb on the 10th of Nisan, on the 14th, right? What are you going to do with, with the lamb? The whole assembly is going to kill the lamb. Now, what are they going to do with the blood after the lamb is killed? Exodus chapter 12. And the verse is seven, they are to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animal. This is what it looks like. Next slide. And so you see the hyssop, they dip it in the blood and they spread the blood along the doorposts and also on top the horizontal beam that goes across the doorposts. This was the instruction of God to Moses to tell the people of Israel. That same night, what are they going to do with the lamb? Exodus 12, 8 down to 9. That same night, remember this is the 14th, that same night they must roast the meat over a fire and eat it along with bitter salad greens and bread made without yeast. Do not eat any of the meat raw or boiled in water. The whole animal, including the head, legs, and internal organs, 
must be roasted over a fire. And so that same night, what were, what were, what were they to do with the lamb? They were supposed to roast the entire lamb, the entire meat over fire. They're going to eat it. And when they're going to eat it, they're going to have condiments, right? What does that include? Bitter salad greens. What else? Bread made without yeast. So you have a whole meal, right? It's called the Passover meal. You got the lamb for meat. You got the bread instead of the kanin, instead of the rice. You got the bread. What kind of bread? Unleavened bread without any yeast. What does the yeast symbolize? Sin. Okay, there's a lot of symbolism involved here. Bitter salad. Why does God say bitter salad? It's to remind them of the bitterness they felt during their stay in Egypt. And so this is as a this is a, a purpose of this is to remind them of what they had in Egypt. That way they can all the more appreciate what God is about to do for his people Israel. So the symbolism, next slide, Hesop represents the cleansing of the sin. Roasted lamb, instead of boiling it, to represent the fire of God's justice. Bitter herbs, to remember the bondage in Egypt. Unleavened bread represents spiritual purity. So all those elements were involved in the Passover meal. Now, what do they need to make sure of after they're full already? Deuteronomy Exodus 12 and the verses 10. Do not leave any of it until the next morning. Burn whatever is not eaten before the morning. So these were some of the rules that God gave when it comes to eating it. What else? When they were when they're going to eat the food, the meal, what are they going to wear? What are they going to be doing? Exodus 12, verse 11. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It is Yahuwah's Passover. And so the instruction of God concerning this Passover might sound strange to us, right? They eat, they eat it with bitter herbs or bitter salad, unleavened bread, because God is trying to communicate something. On top of that, even what they're going to wear, God describes, right? What does it say? Your cloak should be tucked into your belt. Your sandals should be on your feet. And your staff, this is your walking staff, should be in your hand. Perhaps it was speaking to the elderly who re rely on a walking staff. And so what does this tell you about God? What is he trying to say? God is telling him, your freedom is at hand. Because when your cloak is stuck into your belt, and sandals are at your feet, and, you're, and, you, are, and you have the staff in your hand, it means you're ready to go. You are prepared. You are ready to leave Egypt and to go to the promised land. God is telling them, it is time. That's how close it is. You're already dressed for the occasion. You're dressed to leave Egypt and to enter the promised land. This is why it's called Yahuwah's Passover. Why? Why is it called Yahuwah's Passover? What does that mean? Exodus 12, 12 down to 13. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn. This is the 10th plague, right? Both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am Yahuwah. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass 
over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Why is it called Yahuwah's Passover? Because that same night, what is, go, what is God going to do? He's going to pass through Egypt, right? And strike down every firstborn. But as he passes through Egypt, as he passes through Goshen, where the people of God reside, when he sees the blood on the doorposts, what did he say he's going to do? He said, I will pass over you. Hence, it is called now you get it, right? That's why it's called Passover, because God is going to pass over them, because what God brings is judgment. Judgment will pass over those who have the blood of a lamb, a lamb that is unblemished, smeared on the doorpost. Do you see the symbolism there? Do you see where it points to? That's why it's called Passover. And after this happens, what are the people of Israel to do with the Passover. Exodus 12, verse 14, this is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to Yahuwah, a lasting ordinance. This is why to this very day, the Jewish people, on the 14th of Nisan, what do they celebrate? Passover. They have a Passover meal. Okay, they changed, of course, the details of the Bible, because it's not exactly, they're not exactly following uh, what God has prescribed there. So it changed a little bit. But to this very day, they celebrate the Passover. But it wasn't only the Passover that God instituted on that day. What also did God institute? Exodus 12, 15 and 16. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, there shall be a holy convocation. And on the seventh, uh, there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So after instituting the Passover meal, what did God also establish? Seven days where they are not to eat unleavened, Bread, okay, for how long? Seven days. It's a whole week. What is this festival called? Next slide, 1217. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this same day, I will have brought you, I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. And so after establishing the Passover, together with that, God also established the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And to this very day, the Jews also observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so uh, together, how many days is that? Eight days, beginning on the 14th, right? To make sure, let's turn to Exodus 12, 18 and 20. In the first month, month of Nisan, on the 14th day of the month, that's Passover, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. So that's a total of eight days, right? Passover, and then you have the seven days. For seven days, no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a stranger or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwellings you shall eat. 
unleavened bread. There's a strong emphasis here on not eating leaven. What does leaven stand for? It stands for sin, impurity. You'll see that later on in our study. And so God is telling them, do not eat le uh, leavened bread. If you eat leavened bread, what is the punishment? Whoever eats what is leavened, the Bible says, that same person, what does it say? Shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. It's like eating blood. Remember that? Leviticus, if you eat blood, you shall be cut off from the people of Israel. The same thing during the festival of the unleavened bread. If during that week you eat leavened, uh, you eat what is leavened, then you are going to be cut off from the people of Israel. That's pretty strict, right? right? And so God gave all these instructions to Moses, and Moses, of course, will tell the people of Israel. So when he told the people of Israel, what also did Moses say and remind them about? Exodus 12, 21 to 22, Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel. The lintel is the horizontal post or the horizontal bar that goes across the, uh, the top of the, uh, the door. Dip it in blood. Strike the lint and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. You're supposed to stay inside the house. Don't go outside the house, especially when God is passing through all of Egypt. And so, what else does uh, Moses tell him? Exodus 12, 23, 24. When Yahuwah goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. And so he's reminding them it's very important that you put the blood on the doorpost because that will be a sign. When God sees the blood on the doorpost, then he will not send the destroyer to enter your house and strike you down. What else did God say? And Moses uh, uh, told the people of Israel concerning this ordinance. Exodus 12, 25 to 28, when you enter the land that Yahuwah will give you, as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to Yahuwah, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what Yahuwah commanded Moses and Aaron. According to what we read the Bible is really emphasizing how important the Passover is to God because he wants to create a ceremony, a lasting and permanent ceremony to remember what God has done. This is why even when they leave Egypt, when they enter the promised land, they are to continue with this ceremony, the observance of this festival. Why? So that when children are going to look at it and ask, why are we doing this? They will be told, because of what the Father, 
Yahuwah has done for his people when he passed over the people of Israel when he came to destroy or strike down the firstborn. And so at midnight, what happened? Exodus 12, 29, 30. At midnight, Yahuwah struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was a loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. That's pretty sad, right? I mean, everyone was crying all at the same time. And it produces a sound, a loud wail across all of Egypt. I wonder how that sounds. Can you imagine the wailing as well on Judgment Day? Right? And so we're seeing here some of how future events will be, is being portrayed. It's being likened to what happened that night when God went through Egypt and there was a loud wail across Egypt. But, and because of this uh, loud wail, because everyone was dying, what did Pharaoh do? Exodus 12, 31 to 33. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship Yahuwah as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go. And also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country. For otherwise, they said, we will all die before they were hesitant, reluctant, did not want to let the people go. Now they're telling them, hurry up, get out of here, because if you don't go, we're all going to die. And so before they leave, what did, what do they do? Exodus 12, 34, 36, so the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders and kneading throws wrapping, wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked, the Egyptian for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. Yahuwah had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. This is why they were already set to go, because there was no more looking back. They had to go right away. And so when midnight struck, it was time. They left. They got some of the uh, goodies from Egypt, because God blessed uh, his people Israel so that the Egyptians look favorably upon them. Well, how many, do you think, were the Israelites when they left Egypt to go to the promised land during this exodus? How many were the Egyptians? Exodus 12, 37, 38, the Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Many other people went up with them as well as large droves of livestock, both flocks and herbs. So how big was this group? 600,000. That's just the men, right? In addition, you had kids. You probably had how many kids each? Let's say two, three, four. Had one wife, right? That's, if it's 600 plus the wives, that's uh, 1.2 million. Plus the kids, easily 2 million. Right? Not only that, but many other people who were not Jewish also went with them. And so, who could they be? We have no idea. Right? But the uh, descendants of Abraham were not the only ones who joined the Exodus. There were people from Egypt who also joined the people of Israel 
as they left Egypt to the promised land. Well, how long did they stay there in Egypt? Exodus 12, 40 to 42. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years on that very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of Yahuwah went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night of solemn observance to Yahuwah for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is the night of Yahuwah, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. And so they stayed 430 years in Egypt. And at the end of that 430 years, that same day, that's when they left Israel. And so that's a pretty long wait, right? Long suffering. The people of Israel had to wait and they learned patience and endurance. God was preparing them because of what they're going to face. And so what else did Yahuwah say to Moses and Aaron? Exodus 12, 43 to 47. Then Yahuwah said to Moses and Aaron, these are the instructions for the festival of Passover. No outsiders are allowed to eat the Passover meal. But any slave who has been purchased may eat it if he has been circumcised. Temporary residents and hired servants may not eat it. Each Passover lamb must be eaten in one house. Do not carry any of its meat outside and do not break any of its bones. Right? You, know, you know why? Yahushua's bones are supposed to be unbroken. This is why when he was nailed on the cross, his bones were not broken. The whole community of Israel must celebrate the Passover festival. And so God also gave instructions concerning who should partake of the Passover meal. Who are they? No outsiders are allowed to eat. But what if an outsider wants to partake of the Passover? Do you think that's possible? Someone who's not Jewish, a foreigner, a foreigner who wants to observe the Passover. Do you think God will allow that? Let's find out. Exodus 12, 48, 49. If there are foreigners living among you who want to celebrate Yahuwah's Passover, let all their males be circumcised. That was a requirement. Only then may they celebrate the Passover with you like any native-born Israelite. But no uncircumcised male may ever eat the Passover meal. This instruction applies to everyone, whether a native-born Israelite or a foreigner living among you. So if you're a foreigner, but you wanted to partake of the uh, Passover meal, you could, but you had to get circumcised. If you're female, I don't know. <laughs> I'm assuming that uh, so long as this person wants to participate, you'll probably be allowed to participate. Okay, so this is what the people of Israel followed. And what did God do? Exodus 12, 50 to 51, the final passages of Exodus chapter 12. So all the people of Israel followed all Yahuwah's commands to Moses and Aaron on that very day. This is why they were ready to go, right? Dressed to go. Not just dressed to eat, but dressed to go. On that very day, Yahuwah brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt like an army. Can you imagine how many they were, right? Two to three million people went all at once. They left Egypt towards the promised 
land. And so the observance of the Feast of Unleavened Bread together with the Passover that was practiced yearly by the people of Israel. Next slide. And this is some of the recorded observances in the Old Testament. Okay, On the evening of Exodus from Egypt, obviously that was the first time it happened. Number two, the second year after the Exodus, when they entered the land of Canaan, there's also a, a recording of that in Scripture, when Solomon built the house of God, they had the Passover. When Hezekiah brought revival, they had a Passover. When Josiah brought revival as well, while dedicating the second temple. So you notice that the major events of the people of Israel, they coincided with the 14th of Nisan, right? They coincided or they coincided with Passover. And so this shows you the importance of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, what does this mean? We know it's important to the people of Israel. Is it also important to us, Christians? What do you think? Is it important to us? It should be. Why? The book of John 5.39, Yahushua says, You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. You see, if you study scriptures in great detail, but it doesn't lead you to Yahushua, you're missing the whole point. The whole purpose of why we need to study the scriptures in detail, it's so that we can be led to Yahushua and place our faith and hope and trust in Him. This is why Yahushua says, you think the words, the scriptures give you eternal life? You can read it all you want, but if you don't go to me, it's not going to give you eternal life. Because the scriptures, their purpose is to point to who? Yahushua. Even during the book of Genesis, and even during the book of Exodus, throughout the Old Testament, even before Yahushua was born, God was already communicating His master plan concerning His salvation. This is why, next slide, the Passover also points to Yahushua HaMashiach. Did you see? Did you see it? Right? Well, let's go ahead and prove it. Next slide, please. Passover points to Yahushua. Remember? Number one, a lamb is to be prepared. Exodus 12, uh, verse 3. Next slide. Yahushua is a lamb of God. John 1, 29. Number two, next slide. The lamb is male, one year old without blemish. You know why a one-year-old lamb is selected? Not too young, not too old, at the prime. How old was Yahushua when he, he entered the ministry and died? 30? In his prime, right? In his prime, just like a lamb. Next, uh, next slide, please. Yep. Yahushua is without blemish or defect. First Peter chapter 1, 19 down to... 20. What else? Next slide. Number three. The lamb was slain. Exodus 12, verse 6. Yahushua was crucified. Corinthians 2, 2. Next slide. The whole assembly will slay the lamb. Exodus 12, verse 6. Yahushua gave up his life for the whole assembly. Ephesians 5, 25. The lamb shed blood was given to protect life. Exodus 12, verse 7. Next slide. Yahushua's blood redeemed us from sin. Ephesians 1. Verse 7, the lamb is to be food for them. Remember? What else? Next slide. Yahushua is living bread, he said, who has given his flesh to be eaten. John 6, 51. Number 7, the lamb's blood is put on the doorposts and above the doors. Exodus 12, 22. Next slide. Yahushua is the door to salvation. John chapter 10, verse 9. 
You see the parallelism? Number eight, they must remain inside the house, marked by the Lamb's blood. One, next slide, one must remain in the assembly, redeemed by the blood of Yahusha. Acts 20, verse 28. Number nine, when God sees the Lamb's blood, his wrath will pass over them. Exodus 12, 23. By the blood of Yahusha, we are saved from God's wrath. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. And so we can see very clearly that the Lamb points to who? Yahusha. The Passover points to the deliverance of God for the sake of his people. If back then the wrath represented the death of the firstborn, during our time, wrath represents what? Judgment day. Because back then, judgment that was cast was the death of the firstborn son. Now, judgment is the death of those who don't belong to Yahusha. So next slide. In Genesis, the lamb was slain for an individual. Because even during the days of Abraham, they slayed lambs, right? For the individual. In Exodus, the lamb is slain for a family. Leviticus, the lamb is slain for a nation. New Testament, the lamb of God, Yahusha, is slain for the world. Okay? Now, this brings a point, though, because I don't know if you notice this in the passages I've read. In Exodus 12, verse 14, this is what it says. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival, a lasting ordinance. So we, because God says it's a lasting ordinance. It is something that we need to celebrate from generation to generation. So the Passover, is it something that we should celebrate? Yes. Yes. But are we qualified to, sort of, to celebrate? Why do we ask that? Because if you still remember, who are those qualified to observe? This ordinance, Exodus 12, 48, 49, they had to be circumcised. So before we can partake of this ordinance, we have to first be circumcised. But the good news is this. You know what the good news is? Good news is, when it comes to the religious festivals of the Old Testament, what does that actually point to? Colossians 2, 16, 17, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon, celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Like what we said, everything in the Old Testament, all of that points to who? Yahusha. The reality of Yahusha. It's like, it's a type. Remember we talked about the type? There's a lot of types in the Old Testament all point to Yahusha. Yahusha is the final reality. He is the substance when everything else in the past is but a shadow of things that were to come. And so when it comes to us who belong to Yahusha, there's a different application of the festival. Why? Well, how can we be circumcised so we can partake and observe this festival? Colossians 2, 11 and 12, In him, Yahusha, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. What is that? What is the circumcision of Christ? Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And so for us to participate in that ordinance, 
Passover, we should be baptized, right? Buried with Yahushua in baptism. And who is going to be the Passover lamb? 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Who is our Passover lamb? Yahusha. Well, how are we going to observe it? We have the Passover lamb, we have the preparation, we're baptized. How are we going to observe it? Corinthians also, 11, 23, 26. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Yahusha, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What is that? The Lord's Supper. Supper. This is also what we observe. Does God want us to do this? Yes. Does Yahushua want us to do this? Yes. Do we do it? Yes. This is why we encourage those who are capable of joining us to prepare. We gave you the uh, advanced dates so that you can, sh you can join us as we partake of the Lord's Supper. However, before we partake of the Lord's Supper, what should we do first? Corinthians 27, 29. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so in preparation for our Lord's Supper, what is our responsibility? Our responsibility is to examine self, to get rid of the yeast in our life, get rid of the sin in our life, so that we can be worthy to partake of the Lord's Supper. Okay, so that's the significance of the uh, Passover. It points to Yahusha's sacrifice. And because he has been sacrificed, those who belong to him, when God's judgment comes, on the day of judgment, God will pass over our life. God, God's wrath will pass over us, and we shall receive salvation. Okay? All right. Now we'll go to, next slide, we'll go to our snail mail. <laughs> snail mail. All right, let's go to the first question. Uh, his brother uh, said, please enlighten me, Paul, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong on our next BHP. Is it right or wrong to say that I or we should not be called Christians anymore since our Messiah's given name is Hebrew? Not that we are not followers of Yahushua anymore, but because the word Christian derives from the Greek word Christos. In English, it is equivalent to Christ, which means Messiah. This is why we call ourselves Christians. Nevertheless, we are followers of Yahushua HaMashiach. Technically, there's nothing wrong with being called a Christian. Why? What does Christ mean? Just like what he said, it means Messiah, right? And so to be a follower of the Messiah, which is what a Christian is, technically, there's nothing wrong with that. However, there's a passage in Scripture that you perhaps know very well, in the book of Isaiah, 43, 5 to 6, fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east, 
and gather me from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. And so we have here a prophecy that we know found its fulfillment in the calling of God's people in these last days beginning in 1914, there in the east, the islands of the sea in the east to be specific. So this pertains to us, right? This is our calling and election as members of the Church of Christ. If you read verse 7, how are we going to be recognized? This is what it says, Isaiah 4, 3, 7. Everyone who is called by my name. What name? Whom I have created for my glory. I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. And so we will be called, not by the title, right, but by the name. What name is that? Yeah, it's the name of Yahusha, which has the name of Yahuwah. It's the name that God created for his glory. God created a name for his glory. Why is it for his glory? Because his name is in it, right? What name is that? The name of Yahuwah. Yeah. So, yes, it's technically correct. It's good. I mean, it's biblical to be called a Christian. But it's also even better and even more prophetic to be called by the name Yahushua. How about Yahushan? Oh, we're going to get persecuted again. <laughs> or Yahushans, right? That sounds kind of nice, right? So we're going to be called by the name. Yahuwan, Yahushan, it's the same. Yahuwan, Yahushan, because in God's eyes, they are one. Because Yahuwah and Yahusha are one. Not one God, but one in purpose. Okay, let's go to the next slide. Next question. I hope it's not too late to add this to our BHP tonight. <laughs> Kindly please explain what is Natsarim. <laughs> Natsarim. How is Natsarim related to our loving Yahusha? Is this the same Natsarim that was mentioned in Acts 11, 25, 26, NKJV? If so, is it right to call us Natsar? Thank you. So he wants to be, I guess uh, there are people who are being called Natsar? Never heard of that. A Natsar. Natsarim. Okay, well, let's go to Acts 11, 25, 26 in the New King James and see what it says. This is what it says. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was. It was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called, what? Christians in Antioch. So they were not called Natsarim in Acts 11, 25, 26. They were called what? Christians. But where is Natsarim found in the Bible? It's found here in the book of Acts 24, 5 to 6. For we have found this man a plague, referring to Apostle Paul, who they said was the leader the ringleader of the Nazarenes, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. That's Nazarene. He, he even tried to profane the temple and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. So he, because Apostle Paul was on trial and so he's being accused of being the leader of this sect called Nazarenes who was following the way, following Yahusha, right? And they were called Nazarenes. We can probably say they were committed to following Yahusha and they rejected the ways of Judaism. This is why the Jews, the authorities of Judaism, of course, didn't like 
them so much. And Apostle Paul, being the ringleader, did not like him also. Okay, but should we be called Nazarene, which is based off Nazareth? They're probably from Nazareth, and Yahusha was from Nazareth. Are we going to be called by the name of the place? I think in the book of James, chapter 2, verse 7, do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? And so it also ties in with Isaiah 43, verse 7, right? We're called by that noble name. What is that name? The name of Yahusha. Why is that a noble name? Philippians 2, 9 to 10. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. But at the name of Yahusha, every knee should bow those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. And so according to Apostle Paul, that noble name by which we ought to be called is the name Yahusha. And it's noble because the name Yahusha has the name which is the name above every name. What is that? Yahuwah. This is why Yahusha contains Yahoo, which is the essential part of the name of Yahuwah. This is why this is a noble name. Not only is it a noble name, what does the Apostle Peter say about that name, Yahusha? Acts 4, 10, 12, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Yeshurah, but in the name of Yahusha, Mashiach of Nazareth, whom you impaled, whom Elohim raised from the dead, by him this one stands before you healthy. There is no deliverance in anyone else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we need to be delivered. And so if I were to choose a name, if uh, I would choose how we are to be called, I would not say Nazarim. I would not say Christian. I would say Yahushan, right? Follower of Yahusha, because the name Yahusha is the name that has been given for our salvation. Okay. Next slide. All right. There's another question sent to me via messenger. Not going to mention the source. I'm not mocking the name Yahusha. What I'm saying is that the Messiah's name was Yehoshua which is supported by historical evidence and is not even a matter of dispute among Hebrew scholars. Pronunciation of the Tetragrammaton, yes, is a name no one can agree on, but Yehoshua, Yehoshua was the name from which Jesus originated. Yehoshua is a name that has been in existence for thousands of years and was actually a common name. I don't know where Kajan got Yahusha from. Okay, so based on... Uh, this uh, comment, the basis of the argument seems to be that if there is a belief that is upheld by so many Hebrew scholars for such a long time, someone claims thousands of years, that it must be true, right? What do you think? Do you think that's valid? Just because it is believed by so many Hebrew scholars and just because it has been around for thousands of years, but it must be true. What do you think? Is that, a, is that a sound argument? Is that a sound basis? I don't think so. You know why? The book of Revelation 12, verse 9, So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. The Bible says that the, the, the devil deceives the whole world. World. This is why if there's some idea, some thought, some philosophy that is accepted by so many for such a long time, 
That should be a red flag. Why? Because it could be the one who is operating behind the scenes, influencing such a belief to be maintained, is who? The devil. Because the devil, he deceives the whole world. So what we need to do, and keep in mind, we must base our faith not on what scholars teach or what scholars say, because if that's the case, then it's going to be a flimsy basis because scholars make mistakes all the time. This is why they contradict one another. That should never be the basis. What scholars say, how many scholars say this, how many scholars say that, that should never be the basis. Maybe I'll take Hebrew class because there are those who think, oh, if I just mastered the Hebrew language, that's going to tell me what the name is or what to believe. No, the basis is never that. What's the basis? So that we will not be deceived by the enemy. Is it to take a Hebrew class? I don't think so. What is it? Next slide. Second Thessalonians 2, 9 to 11. The wicked one will come with the power of Satan and perform all kinds of false miracles and wonders and use every kind of wicked deceit, even in Hebrew class. On those who will perish, they will perish because they did not welcome and love the truth so as to be saved. And so God sends the power of error to work in them so that they believe what is false. What should be our basis? What should we do? Hold on to so that we will not be deceived. Hold on to the truth. Welcome and love the truth. Right? Well, where can we find the truth? Some university, a college, internet. Right? Where is the source of truth? Second Timothy 3, 15 and 17. Now from childhood, you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus or Yahusha. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, fully equipped for every good work. And so it should be holy scriptures. Why? Because the Holy Scriptures are inspired by God. Universities are not. Scriptures, yes. If it's based on Scripture, if that's our source of belief, then we will not be deceived. This is why we have to turn to Scripture. If it's not found in Scripture, do not believe it. If it's outside of Scripture, do not believe it. If it's invented by men, do not believe it. Believe the Scriptures because it is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine so that we can be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work okay and so we should not say we should not conclude because all the hebrew scholars believe this doctrine for such a long time it must be a correct doctrine what's an example of that next slide what is an example of a doctrine okay i want you to think what's an example of a doctrine over a thousand years old and believed by most scholars if not all uh, you are sharp. Next slide. The belief that Christ is God, right? When did they make that an official dogma? Next slide. This course is on the Apostles' Creed. Thus, for example, it was not until 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea that the church defined for us that it was an article of faith that Jesus is truly God. So this teaching that Jesus is truly God, was it invented or is it biblical? Invented. What came first? The teaching that Jesus Christ is a man or the teaching that Jesus Christ is truly God? It's the teaching that he is a man in the state of being. That's original Christian and biblical doctrine. Why? It's in the Bible. But the doctrine that Jesus is truly God, that was invented. It's not in the Bible. When was it invented? 325 A. 
D. And so when we say that the doctrine that Yahusha is truly God is thousands of years old, that's true. But there's one even older than that. What is that? It's the teaching that Yahusha is not fully God, that he's a man in his state of being. That's the original. Did you get that? And so the original was corrupted. Eventually, Yahusha became who? God, right? And so all these, all these doctrines, the, all the scholars believe it for such a long time. This is why we cannot use that argument. But let's go back to uh, the comment. I just wanted to point out the highlighted part. Yahushua is a name that has been in existence for thousands of years. I don't know where Kajang got Yahusha from. And so the implication is that Yehoshua was the original biblical name and Yahusha was invented. Right? That's the implication. But actually, it's the other way around. The original name is Yahusha. And Yehoshua was invented. Yahusha is the original biblical name. And Yehoshua was invented thousands of years after Yahusha. And we will prove that to you. Is that okay? All right. How? Well, let's go to how Yahusha looks like. There we go, right? These are some of the uh, scripts, some of the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. Scrolls that they found, it has the name Yahusha, okay? Next slide. It can be rendered in modern Hebrew, that's on top, or Paleo-Hebrew, which is the original. Remember, Yahusha was first used by the father when he told Moses to change the name of Husha, who was who? Joshua, right? To become just, to become Yahusha. So Yahusha was originally written in Paleo-Hebrew. Not modern Hebrew, but Paleo-Hebrew. But we will use both Hebrews. That's how it looks like in modern Hebrew. The Yod, the He, the Vav, the Wow, the Shin, and the Ayin. Okay? Paleo-Hebrew, that's how it looks like, which was in popularity was what was used back in 1500 B.C. during the time of Moses. Okay, so when Moses was alive, what he will recognize is the one on the bottom. He will not recognize the one on the top. So Yahushua was originally rendered in Paleo-Hebrew, not modern Hebrew. Okay, and what do we need to know about the name of Yahushua? John 17, verse 11. Before we analyze it, I am no longer in the world, and yet they, they themselves are in the world, and I, have, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And so even when it comes to the name, Yahusha and Yahuwah are one, because the name of Yahuwah is contained in Yahusha. What part of Yahuwah? Yahu. That name Yahoo is found in Yahusha's name because the essential part of Yahuwah is Yahoo. And so even in prophecy, all the way back in Exodus, did God already determine this name? Yes. Exodus 23, 21, 22. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions. For my name 
is in him. But if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. So God is giving a prophecy, and we'll study this when we go to Exodus 23. This is a very profound uh, prophecy. And he's speaking about a malak or an angel. And his name, and he will be given the right to pardon transgressions. Who is that? Yahusha. And what did he say? My name is in him. You see, God has placed his name in the names of his people. His people. Especially the name of his son. How does God put his name in the names of his people so his name can be a memorial name? Let's read what it says. Well, let's go to the next slide. Exodus 3.15. Remember, God says, this is my name forever regarding the Tetragrammaton, and this is my remembrance to all generations. To do that, what did God do? He placed his name in the name of his people. Look at all those examples in the Bible. We'll expand that. Next slide. What do you notice? What word pops out at you? The name Yahoo. That's the name of the Father. And it is found, it is found in Hundreds and hundreds of names of the people of God that are in the Bible. You see all the H numbers there? Those are Hebrew names. Hebrew numbers found in the Bible. This is why if you want to know the name of God, how to pronounce it, just go there. It teaches you how to pronounce it. It begins with what? Yahoo. The first three letters of the name of the Father is pronounced Yahoo. And it is found in the name of the Christ or the Messiah. So how is it pronounced? Next slide. Well, we know the first three is Yahoo. There's no debating that. That's what's not debatable because it's in the Bible. All those names are in the Bible. So it's biblical and it's Yahoo. When you find the three letters, the Yod, the He, the Vav, it is Yahoo every single time. Yahoo in the Bible. If you will say it's not Yahoo, then you're going against the teaching of the Bible. It's Yahoo. And then you add the Shin and the Ayin. In the instances where you find it in the Bible, it's pronounced Shah because Shin is Sh and Ayin is Ah. Yahoo Shah. Okay? That is the name. So where do we get Yehoshua from if it's not Yahusha? Well, next slide. Do you see the name of uh, Yehoshua there? Do you see the name of Yahusha there? You don't see it? It's on the uh, left side. You see it? The Yod on the left side. Look at the arrow. The one on the left. Do you see the name? I should have, I should have underlined it. I forgot. You see the, the Yod and then the He, the Wow, the Shin, the Ayin. You see it now? On the left side, if you're looking at it, look on the left. You see it? What do you notice about these Hebrew scripts? What do you notice? Yeah, they have a lot of dots in them. You notice that? You know what they are? They're called vocal points. They're used to help people pronounce. That's why by adding these vocal points, you can change the sound of a name. But, this is what I need you to remember, the vocal points are not inspired. When the Bible says all scripture is inspired, the vocal points were not. Why? They were not included in the scriptures. What's the proof? Next slide. These are ancient scripts. Do you notice any dots on them? 
Any marks on them? No, just the letters. Next slide. These are scripts, ancient scripts. They do not have the dots. They do not have the vocal markings. Next slide. The bottom is the original. The top is the modern Hebrew. You notice how in the modern, they added the dots? And when you added the dots, you look, at, look, look for example, the red. Oh, go to the next slide, please. Next slide. Yeah, so these are, the one at the bottom is the original. The one on the top is the one with the added markings, right? You see the name of God there in the red? You see the markings there underneath it and on top of it? Those are mar vocal markings. But do they exist in the actual? No, it's not there, right? This is why in the original, it's pronounced Yahuwah. But when you add the markings, it becomes Yehovah because of the markings, okay? So I just want you to notice that. What are these markings, though? Where do they come from? Next slide. We got this last time when we went to <coughs> Jeff Benner's website. This is what he said. Around 1000 AD. 1000 AD. Was that during the time of Moses? No, like thousands of years after the time of Moses. This is a thousand years after the death of Yahusha, oh, and then the resurrection of Yahusha, right? And so the Bible was long completed. The Bible was completed when? When was the Bible completed? 1980. When did Jesus become God? 325 AD. 1080. This is what they created. Is it biblical? No, because they created it after the Bible, right? This is, that's why this is not biblical. A group of Jewish scribes called Masorites developed a system of dots, dashes called Nikodat, singular Nikud, that were placed above and below the letters to represent all the vowel sounds. These inserted vowels most likely provide to us the pronunciation of Hebrew at that time, at the time of 1000 A.D., Okay, below is the Hebrew text of Genesis 1-1 written with the Aramaic alphabet. So there are no dots. You add the dots, that's how it looks like at the bottom. What does Jeff Benner say about the Nicodot system? Next slide. As I mentioned previously, the ancient pronunciation of Hebrew may have been lost to us over time, but it can be assumed that the vowel sounds inserted into the text provide us the pronunciation of Hebrew at that time, 1000 AD. But the question is, is the traditional pronunciation of 1000 AD the same as it was in 1000 BC? Unfortunately, there's no way to answer this question. However, this is the beautiful part. In Paleo-Hebrew, you don't need vowel sounds. The ancients, when they drafted documents, they did not put vowel points because the letters themselves produce the sounds and the vowels. This is why when we look at script, we need to make sure it doesn't have those dots. Why? Those are man-made, invented, and do not belong to the inspired scripture. Okay? And so next slide, that's Yahusha. The Yod, the He, the Wow, the Shin, and then the... Ayin, Yahushua. It is pronounced the way it is spelled without vowel markings. However, when you add the vowel markings, next slide, it becomes Yehoshua. 
Okay, so which came first, Yahusha or Yehoshua? Yahusha. Yehoshua is only the result of incorporating Nikud markings, which was invented 1000 AD. Is that a God-made name? No. It's a man-made name. The God-made name is Yahusha. So how do you get from Yahusha to Yehoshua when you add the Nikud markings? Next slide. So this is uh, the uh, Yahuwah, Yahusha with the Nikud. Okay. And so let's go ahead and we're going to teach you how to use the Nikud markings. Next slide. And so the one highlighted there, the two dots underneath the Yod, the two dots that stand one on top of the other is called a Shiva, a Shiva. The Shiva underneath the Yod produces a Ye sound on the Yod. So when you see the Shiva underneath the Y, instead of a Ya, they made it into a Ye. When did it start? 1000 AD. Invented by who? Man. It's not inspired. Okay? So Ye. It becomes Ye. Next slide. Look at that dot. A dot, a single dot over the He what the Jewish community calls the kolam, the kolam. This vowel point forces an O sound. It forces an O sound when it is placed at the top left of a character. When used on the he, in this name, it produces the ho sound. And so you get the ye and the ho. So far we have what? Ye ho. The, these two vowel markings, the shem and the kolam, is a direct assault on the name of God. Because Yahoo, Yahoo becomes what? Yeho. Now you know how you went from Yahoo to Yeho. Is it from God? No. Why would God erase his name? This is man-made, influenced by the devil to remove the name Yahoo and replace it with Yeho, which is not the name of the Father. The name of the Father is what? Yahoo, not Yeho. Okay, let's go to the next marking. Next slide, that dot on top of the, the Shayin. The Shin has a dot at the top, the top uh, right of the letter, which is telling the reader that it is a Shin that carries the Sh sound. Okay, so it's telling us that the Shin is going to produce a Sh sound. However, the Shin already naturally produces the Sh sound. There's really no need for that dot to be there. And so... By adding that dot, it guarantees it, the sh sound. So, so far we have yehosh, yehosh, okay? And then something strange happens. See, next slide. You see those three dots? The three dots that run diagonally at the bottom of this character is called the kabutz, the kabutz. This forces the reader to add an oo sound when pronouncing this letter. So instead of saying simply sh, you would say shu. So far we have yeho. Shoo. So because of the kibbutz, there was an added oo sound, even though when you look at the letters, there's none. It all was provided by the kibbutz, <laughs> the three dots. Is that inspired? No, it's man-made, invented in 1000 AD. So far we have yeho, shoo. And then you have, next slide, you got the uh, underscore there, this character the Ain has a mark under it that resembles an underscore. This mark is called the patak or patak and tells the reader to make the ah sound. Take note, however, that this is the natural root sound of the letter Ain. Ah. So now we have ye, ho, 
Shua. Yehoshua, when you look at the letters, that's what you get, Yehoshua, when you have the letters, plus the vowel markings. But if you will just look at the letters and their natural sounds, next slide, this is what you get, right? No added markings because the markings were not biblical. The markings were just man-made, but this is God-made. This is inspired. What is it? How do you read that? Without the... <laughs> Can you get Yahushua out of that? No, it's clearly Yahusha, not Yehoshua, because of the markings they created the word Shua when it should be Sha, right? So how will we know which one is which, which one is really biblical? Of course, the one without the markings. But how can we prove that? Well, it has to match the meaning of what Yahusha is trying to capture, right? What is the meaning of the name given to the Son of God? Let's read the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 21. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Yahusha. For he will save his people from their sins. So the name of Yahusha, the one given here by the angel to be given to the son, is defined to be he will save his people from their sins. Or he is your Savior. Does the name Yahusha match that? Well, Yahusha comes from two root words, Yahu, Yahua, and Yasha. Yasha, strong Hebrew 347, means save, savior, deliver, help. So Yahusha means Yahua saves, Yahua is our deliverer, Yahua is our savior. And so when Yahusha was being applied to Joshua, Son of none, this is what it meant. Yahuwah is your deliverer. Yahuwah is your savior. But when it is being applied to Yahusha, the son of God, it changes. Next slide. It becomes, I am your savior. Because Yahu also means, I am who I am. All right? And so when Yahusha was born, the son of God, then he became himself the savior. I am he who is your Savior. In either case, it basically means he is your Savior. I am he who is your Deliverer or Savior. So it matches. Well, how about Yahushua or Yehoshua? Looks like. So it's from two words, Yeho and Shua. Yeho is the corrupted form of Yahu. So we'll say Yahushua. So why would you even want to use a corrupted form of Yahu? Isn't that blasphemy? Right? I mean, I would stick to Yahoo. Why would you change Yahoo to Yeho? But for the sake of argument, let's call it Yehoshua or Yahushua. What does that mean? What does Shua mean? The Hebrew 7769 Shua means cry, cry for help, cry out. And so Yehoshua, next slide, has a meaning of Yahuwah, needs assistance or needs help, cries out for help or needs saving. It doesn't match, does it? It doesn't match at all. This is why the, the biblical meaning or the way that the name that is given to the Son of God is not best depicted by Yehoshua. No, but Yahusha. Next slide. Because it's composed of Yahuwah, the Father, plus Yasha, which means saves, equals Yahusha. Yahuwah saves. Is it biblical? 
Yes. What is not biblical? The Nikud markings. Because the Nikud markings transformed Yahusha into Yehoshua. And so Yehoshua is not thousands of years old. It, it's not more than a thousand years old. Okay? And why are we not surprised that people will reject the name of Yahusha? John 5, 43. This is what Yahusha says. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. What's the Father's name again? Yeah. Yahuwah. What's the Father's name that he's going to give to his son? Yahu. So when he presents himself, when he says he's Yahusha, many people will not receive him. That's what Yahushua is saying, right? So we're not surprised. If he will come in his Father's name, if he will adopt Yahoo as part of his name, right? People will not receive him. What's astonishing is the next part of this prophecy. What is that? Let's continue reading. If another comes in his own name, meaning not using Yahoo, but something else, Yeho something, maybe Jesus, right? If he comes and uses his own name, it doesn't come from Yahusha or Yahuwah because it doesn't have Yahoo, him you will receive. Isn't that what's happening now? If it's Yehoshua, amen. It's okay. <laughs> if it's Jesus, it's okay. But Yahusha? No. Why? Because it has a name Yahoo. And Yahusha himself said, time will come. They will reject my name because it's from my father's name. But what is the real reason why they cannot accept it? Let's read. We're not surprised by this. John 10, 24, 26. Then Jews surrounded him, Yahushua, and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And so Yahushua speaks up. Yahushua answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. As I said to you, what do people fail to see? Which is why they cannot accept the name Yahusha. They fail to see the works. That's why Yahusha said, the works that I do in my father's name. And so when they look at his works, the miracles he did, and then he did it in the name of Yahuwah, it testifies or bears witness of me. The work and the name, Yahuwah, Yahusha. The works that I do, the miracles, then you must be the Christ. But they cannot see that. They cannot see the connection between Yahuwah and the miracles or the works of Yahusha. And so they refuse to believe that he is the Christ. And then Yahusha said, that's because you are not of my sheep. Those who are true sheep of Yahusha, they know the true name of the Father. And they know the true name that is to be given to his son. Okay, all right. Next slide. Next question. This is uh, from Nehemiah Gordon. Yahuwah, like actually, I, this is a question posed towards, uh, it was asked, I guess they were asking him about this name. Yahuwah is gaining popularity. I think this is God's work, you know, when it's gaining popularity. It's God's work because the Bible does say in time of the end, 
his name will be his name will be made known again. Yahuwah is gaining in popularity as a pronunciation of God's holy name. Can someone please tell me how to spell Yahuwah in Hebrew, including the vowels? Is the first vowel patak or kamatz? <laughs> what is that? What does that remind you? What does that cause you to remember? Nikud, <laughs> right? In English, these vowels are pronounced the same, but in ancient Hebrew, they are two completely different vowels. Please write out for me Yahuwah in Hebrew with all with his full vowels. Nehemiah Gordon, I really am not trying to mock anyone. I genuinely want to know how the Yahuwah people spell it in Hebrew. How do you spell it in Hebrew? Yod, hey, wow, hey. That's how you spell it. In he in Paleo Hebrew, all four letters, all three letters of the tetragrammaton can act as a consonant and a vowel. You don't need to add vowels, and you definitely don't need to add vowel markings, right? Nehemiah board. Uh, I looked up Yehovah in over a thousand Hebrew manuscripts. I was able to look up Yahweh in uh, in Genesinius's Hebrew grammar and BDB lexicon. I could not find any source for Yahuwah showing me how it is written in Hebrew because Yahuwah is not using the Nikud markings. These quote-unquote scholarly works base it on the Nikud markings, which is not biblical. Remember, if you want your faith to be solid, if you will not be deceived, then you have to use biblical material not extra-biblical, not go to some Hebrew school and know the marks that is man-made. No, you study the Bible. Look at the Bible because it will tell you how it is to be pronounced. And then he even says, attention, Church of Christ 1914, may right? And so this is, next slide, this is how the tetragrammaton looks like with the markings. Remember the Shiva and the Kolam? It transformed the Yahoo into a what? Ye ho. Ye ho va. Yehovah and Jehovah are both derived from the Nikud markings. Okay? And Kaurdi himself said that Yehovah, Yehovah, which is what many scholars believe today, is not the correct pronunciation of the Tetragrammaton. Okay, as far as I know, uh, Ka'erdi the Sugot never taught the, a stand for INC concerning the pronunciation of the Tetragrammaton. Did they teach about the Tetragrammaton? Yes, I told you that. But they did not take a stand on how it is pronounced. But one thing we know is uh, Yehovah and Jehovah are both rejected by Brother Iranuji Manalo. That we know. Okay, um, so this is. Jehovah, Yehovah, with the, which is the result of the markings on there. But when you look at the actual name, next slide, it is in Paleo-Hebrew, right there. No markings, next slide. No markings, right? Well, if there are no vowel markings, then how can you pronounce it? Because they think, oh, this is going to be difficult to pronounce because it doesn't have vowel markings. It's, a lot of people make it out like some mysterious way, some mysterious thing to pronounce the name of the Father. It's not. What's the proof? Next slide. This is from the, uh, the Jewish uh, Talmud. According to the Talmud, Sanhedrin 90a, you lose your portion in the world if you, quote, 
pronounce, this is from the Talmud, pronounce the divine name as it is spelt. How many letters? Four. Four letters. The Yod, the He, the Wow, and the Hey. Four letters. Does it have vowel markings? No. What this rabbi is saying, what the Talmud is saying, if you pronounce the divine name as it is spelt, so you can pronounce it without any markings, you can pronounce it simply looking at the letters, how it is spelt. Everyone knew how to pronounce the name of Yahuwah during the time of the people of God's reign there in Israel and as the people of Judah, right? If, uh, at the bottom, you see an example of the Talmud, which was before the Nikud markings. People had no problems reading that, and it had no vowel markings. You can pronounce the name of Yahuwah. It is in the Holy Bible. Next slide. There's another question. What I'd really like to know is, what proof do you have, and are you 100% confident that your brother, <laughs> that would be me, <laughs> is commissioned to preach your belief of the true name of God, a new doctrine that was not something either the Sugo or Ka'erdi preached? You, have, you do not have the right to preach, let alone to preach about the name of God. And so according to some people, okay, not saying all, but some, that I no longer have the right to preach because for those who are in INC, because I'm expelled, right? So the INC people are saying, you're not, you don't have the right to preach because you're expelled from the church. Those who are among the quote-unquote defenders, they also say, I don't have the right to preach. And they will say, you don't have the right to preach because what you're teaching is not taught by the Sugo, not taught by Ka Erdi. But why? What is my claim uh, for the right to preach? Because if I don't have the right to preach, I shouldn't be preaching. And so what's my basis? I think you know the answer. The book of Revelation 7, 2 to 3, Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants for God on their foreheads. And so this prophecy we know very well. It speaks of an angel or messenger who has the seal of the living God. What's the seal again? The Holy Spirit. What's most important here? Is it the angel or is it God using the angel? It's God. Sometimes we lose focus, right? Sometimes we're so focused on the angel, we forget about God who uses the angel. Am I right? Sometimes we're so focused on the instrument, we forget God. And so when the instrument is gone, it's like the end of the world. Woe is me. No. What's important is not the instrument. What is important is God who uses the instrument. What does God give this instrument? The seal. Why? Because of the work. What is that work? To seal the servants of God on their foreheads, who are included, who were given also that Holy Spirit, those who were given that right to preach, together with Asugo. We, we, right? Who is the another angel referred to there? Who was the fulfillment? Brother Felix, why? Manalo. Did he pass away? Yeah. After he passed away, did his work continue? Because it's whose work. Yeah. Don't forget that. 
It's not the work of the sugo. No, it's the work of God using the sugo. But after the passing of the sugo, the work continues. Why? Because we, God uses we, God uses people to continue with the work of sealing the servants of God on their foreheads. Which is why it's very confusing. Okay, next slide. If you look at that part, the bottom part, because you preach a belief that was not taught by the sugo or Coyote. Let me ask you this, okay? Why don't you follow this logically? Is Coyote the other angel there? No. Is he the another angel? No. He's not, right? <clears throat> then why did we follow what he was teaching us? Did he have a right to preach? Yeah, because of the we. Was he the only one given the right to preach because of the we pronoun? No. Who are included there? Whomever God wants. Right? And so, why did we accept the teaching that Carr already taught from the Bible? Because it's in the Bible. When Kaurdi preached about the far west, was that preached by the Sugo? No. When Kaurdi preached about Jerusalem, Greece, Rome, was that preached by the Sugo? No. Why do we believe it? Is it the other angel? No. But because God used him to preach it from the Bible. That's the key. It's from where? The Bible. The Bible. Because bottom line is the Bible is the one that will tell us what the truth is, even if these messengers, instruments of God, has passed on. Kaurdi died. Does that mean the, the ceiling stops? Kaurdi died? <clears throat> because if you think the ceiling stops after the, 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 the passing of Brother Erdi, then we've placed our hope and focus on who? Man. We forgot God is still alive. The Holy Spirit is alive. Yahushua HaMashiach is alive. It's not about us. It's about God doing the work. This is why, why can't you, why is it only with Ka'erdi? Why is the we only for Ka'erdi? You see the logic there? What's important is about God, right? Because if we're going to say, okay, Ka'erdi died, then does that mean we're no longer going to search the scriptures? No, we will search the scriptures. Why? Because it's scriptures. It's the word of God. And so when we search the scriptures, what did we find? Next slide. Isaiah 1, 8 to 9. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts, Yahuwah of hosts, had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. How the faithful city has become a harlot. I was full of, it was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in it. But now murderers, your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. We search the scripture to explain what was happening in the church. And what did we find? The prophecy. Is it being fulfilled? Yes. Was it fulfilled? Yes. Did we accept it and believe it? Yes. So many of us did. Here's my question. Did the Sugo preach that? No. Did Kaurdi preach this prophecy? No. This is why I want to ask those who are using this prophecy to set up a foundation. Do they believe that Kaurdi preached this? Do they believe that the Sugo preached this? Because they never did. Why do we believe it? Because it's in the Bible. 
and God works continues, even at the passing of Ka Felix and Ka Erdi, because God is still alive. The Holy Spirit remains alive. Christ, Yahushua HaMashiach, is still alive. This is why we keep searching the scriptures and we keep finding answers. And so we believe, even if it was not preached by the Sugo or Ka'erdi, if it's in the Bible, it is profitable for our faith and for the completion of our services. And so we're the very small remnant. We believe that. It wasn't taught by Ka'erdi, wasn't taught by the Sugo, but we believe it. Very small remnant. According to scriptures, why, why do we believe the name is important? Let's read the book of Joel 2, 31, 32. Before I read this verse, I don't know. Do you believe in Joel 2, 31, 32? You believe it? I hope so. It's in the Bible, right? What does it say? The sun shall be turned into black, into darkness, and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of Yahuwah. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name Yahuwah shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as Yahuwah said, among the remnant whom Yahuwah calls. According to scriptures, among the remnant, there are still some whom Yahuwah will call. And this some from the remnant whom Yahuwah calls, what will they do? They will call on the name. When will this take place? Those who will call on the name before the coming of the great and awesome day of Yahuwah. Before you can call on the name. Don't you think you need to know the name first? Right? When you call on the name, do you verbalize it? Yeah. Right? It's like when the apostle said, uh, when Yahushua said, use my name to cast out demons. What did the apostles do? They said, in the name of they verbalize it. Yahusha begun, right? And so when it says, when we call on the name of the Father, Yahuwah, are we going to verbalize it? Yes. This is why it's really, really bizarre how people can't accept that. This is a prophecy concerning what's going to happen before the end. We're going to call on the name. Are we, are we part of that? Zechariah 13, verse 9. I will bring the one-third through the fire. We'll refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, Yahuwah is my God. Will they call on the name? Yeah. When? After 1914, because the third group is 1914. And before Judgment Day comes. Is that happening now? Yeah. Are we going to, should we believe it? Yeah, it's biblical. Because those who reject the name, then how are we going to fulfill this? What does this mean? Call on the name of Yahuwah. I think it's clear. We call the name by verbalizing the name. There's no sin when you pronounce the name Yahuwah. The sin is if we bring to desolation or ruin the name of Yahuwah. And so, we believe, as part of the work of restoration that God has given the Sugo to do, part of that is to preach the name. What's the proof? Let's go to Romans 10, verse 15. How many here are familiar with this verse? Yeah? Romans 10, 15? What does it say? And how shall they preach unless they are 
sent. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Do we believe this prophecy? Do we believe this passage? Yes! You cannot just preach. You have to be sent, commissioned. This is why we believe and hold on to the prophecy concerning the messenger. It's the prophecy that gives us right, that we are sent. But what is the purpose of the sending of preachers during the Christian era? What is the spirit of the preaching of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things? What is the purpose? We read verse 15. We're just going to go up. Okay? 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? This is why verse 15 was included. Because there's something that has to be preached and you cannot preach unless you are commissioned. Those who are commissioned during the Christian era, what is one of the things they need to preach? They need to preach about him. That you call on him and believe in him. This is why call on him. But wait a minute, how can you call on him if you don't believe? So you have to believe. Well, how can you believe if it's not been preached? So it has to be preached. Well, how can you preach if you're not sent? So people are, be, are being Sent. So the purpose of the sending of God's messengers is so that people can call on him, right? And so what is included in that? Verse 13. For whoever calls on the name of Yahuwah shall be saved. So according to Romans 10.15, the name of Yahuwah has to be what? Preached. This is why we believe, knowing, believing, preaching the name of Yahuwah is part of the work God wants us to do. It's in the Bible. It's in the prophecy. Unless, of course, you don't believe in the prophecies of our Almighty God. But there are those who say, next slide, I will wait for God to reveal his name to me. I don't know. I guess people ask this question. They want God to appear to them face to face. Right? They're going to say, Armil, I am Yahuwah. Is God going to do that? You know why God will not reveal his name? Do you know why? Because it's already revealed. Right? It's revealed. Where do we find it? Next slide. It's found all over the Bible. It's revealed. We just have to uncover it because it was covered. It's already revealed. Over 7,000 times it was revealed. He's got to uncover it. And so our work is not to reveal it. Our work is to proclaim it. But before we can proclaim it, it needs to be uncovered. And this is what we saw happen. We're not saying we are the ones who discovered it. No. But we're the beneficiaries because we are to do the work of proclaiming what has been discovered. This is why we will not stop doing that, despite the persecution. It's in the Bible. Well, wait a minute. How do I know? I'm not Hebrew. How can I pronounce it? Next slide. Daniel 9, 19. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen. Take action for your own sake. Oh, my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. It's all over the people of God's names. Next slide. Number 6, 22, 27. In verse 27, thus they shall put my name on their children, on the children of Yisrael. This is why, next slide, you want to know how to pronounce God's name? It's all over the Bible. It's revealed. 
We just got to believe it. But unless you believe it, you will not be able to proclaim it. We believe it, and so we proclaim it in fulfillment of the prophecies in the Holy Scriptures. Okay? That is our lesson for tonight. Let us all stand for our prayer. Everlasting Father, what we have received from you is indeed clear. There are many Hebrew scholars who try and interpret the meaning of your word. But we believe that your word interprets itself. And so by comparing spiritual truth with spiritual, as what we were taught by the last messenger, we have come to know that indeed your name is Yahuwah. We will proclaim that name. We will use that name. For it is your will indeed. Lord Yahusha, thank you so much. Because we are your sheep. We understand what it means. When you said that your work in the name of the Father testifies of you. Because your name was given to you. A special name. A name above all names. A name by which we will be saved. And so we proclaim your name as well. It will be our honor to be called by your name. It would be our honor to suffer hatred and persecution because of your name. The name given to you. May we be worthy enough to share in your suffering. Help us to endure, O Lord. Help us to do what is right and to share this marvelous truth. Father, we believe that you have listened to our prayers. For we ask and beg everything, the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha. Amen. Amen.